Welcome, how are you? Oh, we had a great retreat down in Pennsylvania, an awesome time, and uh, I was reflecting on the fact that the first time uh, Margie and I went down there was 1977, and we met Pastor Chuck, so this is the 40th year, and one thing that I'll never forget about that is um, my background's Pentecostal. That, that's, that's what I was saved in. And, um, and I was, in a, I was in, a, in a great little church. And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, <laughs> experiential type emphasis. And I can remember watching people get prayed on and fall over. And, uh, getting prayer all the time, different people for the gift of tongues. And, uh, and I, you know, I used to, you, you, it's a God thing. God has to do that in your life. And I remember thinking, sort of, sort of like I was sub-spiritual, like, why isn't that happening to me? And uh, we went down there, and uh, we missed the night of the afterglow. Can't believe it that we volunteered to watch the kids that night because we had heard so much about the afterglow where people are, you know, getting touched and healed and things of that nature, prayer for all manner of things. And uh, I remember feeling like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. We came down here and we missed the afterglow. But, you know, when you're serving the Lord, you never miss anything. That's, we were there for a whole week. Saturday came for us to come back. And as we were driving off the hill, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it was so wonderful. There was such a fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And uh, little did I know that two weeks later, Pastor Bill Gallatin would show up from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and begin a work. And the Lord kind of brought us together, actually, the day after he arrived, the Lord kind of brought us together in a very interesting set of circumstances. But um, that place has a very special place in my heart because of, you know, what the Lord had done for us. And, and every time we go there, uh, one, of the, one of the gals, actually one of the gals who come to second service, uh, I think it was either her first time or she hadn't been there in a long time. And uh, after we had, uh, and, and uh, the, the, Friday, the Friday night is the, the last night when we really just sort of afterglow, wait on the Lord, pray for everybody that wants prayer. And, uh, and she was saying afterwards how the Lord had just, just so wonderfully, because I believe that when we set aside some time to meet with the Lord, that he wonderfully meets with us, doesn't he? Isn't he so good? Remember that. Take time. I mean, maybe you can't go on a retreat. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about that. I'm just simply making a point that when we set aside time to get alone with the Lord, that he will wonderfully meet with us and, and, and touch that area of need in our lives. Amen? Uh, Jude, the book of Jude. Uh, we want to look at, well, the remainder of the chapter. Uh, verses 7 through 25. 
for all you people that want to be in Revelation, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> Trying to make it as quick as possible for you. <laughs> Verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh, they are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, whatever they, do, they know naturally like brute beast. In these things they corrupt themselves. And woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, uh, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water and carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame, and wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand, ten thousands of his saints, and he comes to execute judgment on all and convict all of their ungodly, um, their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that these are which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And these are grumblers, complainers, walking after their own lust. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before uh, by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, when they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And with our amen, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we bless you. Lord, how we praise 
and honor you and thank you that you've chosen us. You've called us by your name. Lord, you have paid, Lord, that price for redemption. Lord, you've brought us into a glorious and wonderful eternal relationship. And Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, I'm reminded, this song we were just singing a moment ago, that you're the God who breaks every chain. And we praise you for that, Lord. We thank you for what you've done, Lord, within our lives. And Lord, you not only broken chains initially, you continue to break chains. Lord, we thank you that there is power, wonderful power, in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we honor you today. We invite you today as our Savior, as our Shepherd. Lord, as the one who emancipated us, that you would come, Lord, and speak your word once again. Lord, take these words, which are your words, and Lord, speak them into our lives, into our hearts. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you not only speak to us, Lord, presently about the matters of our life, but Lord, you speak to us. You warn us about the future. Lord, you see the things that are set before us. And Lord, we're thankful. Thankful, Lord, that you know all things. And Lord, we commit ourselves to you in safekeeping, realizing, Lord, that, Lord, your way is always the best way. How kind you are and gracious. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning in a fresh way. Amen. Now, we left off uh, last time as we, we read verse 7, uh, an indictment there against uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the mere name of that sort of um, brings back a, 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 uh, the memory of a book entitled uh, Slouching Toward Gomorrah. I don't know if you ever remember that. Uh, it was written by an appellate judge uh, whose name was Robert Bork. And uh, uh, I'm sure that you, you, you remember now, as I mentioned that particular name. And he wrote that book back in 1996. But he also, too, uh, uh, in, in, when he wrote the book, his subtitle uh, was Modern Liberalism and, Amer and the American De Decline. And he was speaking about the moral decline and what he saw taking place, you know, back in the 70s, the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, and all those uh, particular times uh, looking at the, as, as, the, as the nation just begins to incrementally begin to slide and slip, um, you know, into that, uh, that moral morass that we see uh, taking place today. And that's, you know, like the scientific experiment, you get, a, you get conditioned to it, don't you? You just sort of get conditioned to it, and we don't realize, you know, what has happened, you know, perhaps in the last generation as we look around. Now, Bork was a brilliant uh, judicial scholar, and uh, if you remember, he was nominated by Ronald Reagan in 1987 uh, for the Supreme Court. And, uh, and he obviously had a pretty um, serious and long paper trail uh, whereby those who were going to uh, uh, basically approve him uh, could read and find out where he stood uh, in his particular politics. And uh, the pol political left went into a rage. They went into a rage about that, and they, and they basically smeared his chances, any chances that he would ever have on the Supreme Court. But his theme in that book, in a sense, is like Jude's here. Uh, 
is basically the moral decline of the nation. And as Jude was looking at the nation and the world around him, just like you and I look at it, and uh, we have to be careful that we don't get so frustrated and sort of just sort of give up. Um, we have to be careful that we don't look and think that perhaps there's going to be some kind of political answer to what's going on in our culture and our society. The answer is always Jesus Christ. Uh, God changing lives, God saving people, one person at, the, at a time. That's the answer that we need, you know, in our culture, in our society. And I think whether, you know, I think sometimes people will debate about this because, again, I think we become somewhat inoculated. We become somewhat inoculated by the culture uh, around us. And I think whether we want to accept it or not, that our nation morally is in a cesspool. We have to understand that. We have to realize that. Because uh, I think as we realize that the condition of things around us, that that is going to motivate us to pray. That we'll begin to cry out uh, and not just, again, shrug our shoulders, um, you know, uh, um, stick our head into the, into the ground like the proverbial ostrich. Uh, I, I think God calls us to make a difference in the culture, even though when it seems to be so many things are perhaps against us. I think we need to be careful that we don't simply give up. And I think also, too, as we look at this, our concern should be, how are we doing? You know, how are we doing? You know, how are we doing in our relationship with the Lord? Are we just sort of coasting? You know, are we just sort of going along? Um, you know, with the culture, uh, there's, a, there's a grave danger, I think, in that. I think that we need to push back. Uh, and I think that God will give us wisdom on how to do that. Because remember, Judah's been talking about here the importance of how we contend. We're supposed to contend for the faith. That, that is something that the church has always been called to. And even if perhaps it may cost us to do something, um, we need to be ready to do that. Um, I was just reading... Uh, um, Eric Metaxas' uh, latest book here, um, Martin Luther, and it's a biography on Martin Luther. And, uh, uh, you know, Luther, many of you, many of you know that, uh, you know, we talk about Lutheranism and, uh, you know, the birth of the Reformation and Protestantism and all that. Well, he was a Catholic monk, and he, he saw the corruption, the tremendous corruption, the religious corruption that was in the Catholic Church and Christianity at that particular time, and he stood against it. And it came down to this one thing where it was basically him against the Pope and all you know, the might and power of the Catholic Church. And uh, he was, he was uh, uh, called upon to uh, go to this conference that was called the Diet of Worms. Um, and so he goes there, but also, too, he realized that he was, there were, somebody set him up to kill him. Uh, and, and yet, as, as Luther went there, he basically made a stand, and, and God honored it. And, and God will honor, you know, the stand that you and I have to make. It may cost us something, but nevertheless, it's important uh, that God calls you and I, not just certain individuals. We may see certain individuals who are maybe more hope, uh, high pro profile than we are, but nevertheless, he calls us to really contend for the faith in our circles, wherever it is that we have an opportunity uh, to defend the gospel. You remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was just listening to a song yesterday. I was at Newsboys or one of those uh, on Christian radio, and they were just talking about that, how they were simply, and it just reminded me once again of Romans uh, 1, 16 or 17, I forget, but uh, the importance of that, that truth there to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's got saving power. 
We were singing here, weren't we? There, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus because there's power in the work of Jesus and what he accomplished and how sometimes even just the curiosity, uh, you know, when you begin to mention the name of Jesus, someone begins to, you know, look at that and ask questions about, you know, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that can lead to their salvation. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, <coughs> looking at verse 8 here, now, Jude's going to reveal to us here what can happen uh, <clears throat> to a culture will always begin in the hearts and the minds. That's why Satan is very clever, that he wants to get a hold of our thoughts and our thinking. And I think we need to push back and fight against that. Uh, and one of the ways is, is simply you know, making sure that we're biblical people, that we're really studying the Bible. I, you know, I think maybe for a lot of us, we're watching more video screens than we really are the Bible. That's going to have its impact on us. We need to be biblical people. I don't care how many times you read the road, yeah, read it, uh, read it. <laughs> um, God's word is alive, and it'll come fresh to us as as we read it. As he as as he just simply, you know, speaks something current, something you know, personally and presently applicable uh, to your particular situation, because the Holy Spirit knows <clears throat> and He understands so thoroughly. <clears throat> So again, what we allow in our thinking, in our thoughts, is going to control us. It's going to have an impact on us in some particular way. Now, now he speaks about here in verse 8, you know, these dreamers, how they defile the flesh, they reject authority. And they even speak about, you know, the, the, the evil of, of dignitaries or things that they simply uh, have no understanding about. And again, this, this, this theme of we become what we think is a constant theme in the Bible, Proverbs 26. Uh, as a person thinks in their, in their heart, so are they. You know, Jesus said, out of the heart, you know, comes, you know, all kind, comes murder, you know, fornication, adultery, all kinds of hatred that comes out of the human heart. Now, in other words, uh, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks about the mind, the will, and the emotions. And so what we, you know, what we keep in our mind is, is so vital, so important. Remember Paul said over in Philippians chapter 4, he said, think upon things that are good, that are true, that are lovely. Because, again, whatever it is that we allow in the gate you know, of our eyes and we begin to think over it time and time again, that is going to have an infectious um, impact upon our lives. But he says here concerning Michael in verse, uh, verse 9, Michael, too, was contending you know, with the devil uh, disputing about the, the body of Moses. We're not going to get into that uh, whole matter there, but simply the fact that he contended with the devil. And what he said to the devil is very simply, the Lord rebuke you. You see, we too, folks, are involved in an invisible war, and it's a spiritual and deadly war, and there are many victims. Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody in the last few years? has been simply taken out, maybe somebody that's walked with the Lord, somebody that you've known them for, you've known them for a long time, maybe you've fellowshiped with them. Maybe they're a close, you know, I remember one time some person coming to me and talking about the very person that led him to Christ. How that person had sort of drifted away and was taken out. We're, folks, we are in a, a spiritual war, and we have to realize that. Uh, uh, Tozer, many years ago, wrote a book, um, Battleground or Playground. We're not on a playground, folks. We are on a battleground, and uh, there are minefields, and there are many things that will take people out today. 
And we need to be very careful. We need to realize we're in an invisible war. We're in a spiritual war. Many different casualties. We know them. We love them. I think one of the ways that we can contend with the devil is simply this. Know your Bible and use it. The truth will rebuke the devil. All Michael said to the devil was, the Lord rebuke you. And you see, he's given us truth. Truth is a weapon. It's a powerful weapon. And when we wield it in faith, God will wonderfully use his truth to protect us. Remember Jesus facing off the devil, Luke 4, Matthew 4. He just, he just used some obscure verses in the book of Deuteronomy. Actually, three verses in the book of Deuteronomy. God's word is a powerful weapon. And he's, he's equipped us with that. You'd be able to take your, your sword out of your sheath and, and put it to use. It'll protect you. It'll guide you. It'll inspire you. It'll illuminate those things for you that might be a little bit dark and obscured. Now, he says here in verse 10 that they speak evil of whatever they do not know, and what, only what they know naturally sort of, you know, kind of, kind of uh, uh, the, the term he uses, sort of like, you know, animals. And uh, you see, the natural man is sort of blind. He's, he's, in, he's uninformed about spiritual realities. And I think men oftentimes make decisions, they make judgments that are simply not based upon fact and upon truth. They're guided by sinful instincts. We see that out there in our culture, in our society. Even sometimes when people are well-intended. Well they can be guided by selfish interest, some sinful interest. And we can make decisions where the Holy Spirit will help us, where he will guide us. That's why the Bible says don't judge nothing before the time. How many times have maybe we've made judgments, decisions? The, you know, the Bible basically says, you know, we, we, you know we, we, we don't know as we ought to know. Even sometimes when we may think we're informed, we need to be careful uh, about that. And I think, you know, verse 10 kind of reminds us uh, also, I think many people today, they, they live life on the animal plane. Just according to their senses, what they can sense, what they can feel. Because without Jesus Christ, a person is dead spiritually. They can't really perceive you know, when Christ comes into your life, there's a whole dimension there. You know, we talk about the senses. You know, seeing, hearing, speaking. But when you come to Christ, all of a sudden, there's a whole dimension that, that is opened up for you and me. And it's a spiritual dimension. And you're able to look at a situation from a whole different perspective than the unregenerate mind, the person who's unsaved. That's why the Bible says, don't go to counsel for the ungodly. They're deficient. They can't really help you spiritually. Sometimes I've heard of Christians, you know, going to, 
a secular psychologist and psychiatrist for their $200 an hour. They'll do much better just opening their Bible and saying, hey, Lord, I need to hear from you. Lord, speak to me about this situation. The animal life is eating, sleeping, playing. The Bible warns us against that. I was just reading in, in 1 Corinthians there, Paul says this. And this was something I think, uh, he, he takes his excerpt really from the children of Israel uh, in, uh, back in the book of uh, Exodus and Numbers and uh, Deuteronomy. And he said this, he says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Do not become idolaters as some of them. And as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Isn't that our generation today? A generation of just entertainment. Entertainment driven. I was talking, this, talking to Margie about this uh, yesterday because it, uh, it was an old saying, an old adage, that um, too, ma too much work makes Jack a dull boy. Have you ever heard that one? I can remember my grandmother or something saying that. I didn't realize where, the saying, where that saying came from. It came from the mid-1600s. It came from like 1659. That's why that saying is not applicable today, <laughs> for the most part. Because what happens, in effect, is too much play gets Jack in a lot of trouble. That, that's, that's the warning of the Bible. Oh, we, we need to be very careful that we don't just want to entertain ourselves today. We find that's, that's, what, that's what it's like in our culture and in our society. And, and when you read the rest of that, I'm not going to read, but when you read the rest of it, you realize where that can lead to. The very next verse there is he says, he says, uh, um, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, nor let us tempt Christ, uh, nor complain as some of them also complained. And all these things happened to them uh, as examples for us that they were written for our admonition. And how we need to be so very careful. You know what? Here's God's plan for humanity. Enjoying him. Enjoying Christ. You know that's what heaven's going to be about? That's what's going to make it heaven. Enjoying our relationship with him. Let, let me just add, and you don't have to answer this, okay? Don't answer this. This is a rhetorical question. How you, are you really enjoying your relationship with him? Has it, has it degenerated? And it can, this can happen. Degenerate in just a, a duty. Go to church because you know you have to. Be careful. Be careful that your relationship is not a living, healthy, vital relationship where you can really say, Man, I was in the Bible today, and man, the Lord spoke to me. It was so good. It was so good. 
or maybe when you've had that last time where you were just worshiping. Maybe you were alone and you were worshiping the Lord. And, and it was just, it just ministered to you. You just so enjoyed it. He has saved us that we might come into a relationship where we're enjoying him. And if that ain't happening for us, I think we need to ask ourselves some questions. I think we need to take inventory. I think we need to say, Lord, I want that. There's been times where I, I just, I, I've had to confess some real emptiness in my life. And say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. We need to be honest with God. You know, we're not in that place where, you know, we're, we're enjoying him, we're loving him. Be careful that you're not loving something else. Because remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, whatever you treasure, the, the thing we love is what we pursue. That's the way the heart is. The heart's going to go after the thing that we love. That's what we'll pursue. And God saved us. And I think this happens more often when we've walked with the Lord for a certain period of time. We migrate. We drift. That, that, that initial fervor and passion and love, doesn't it happen in human relationships as well? It does. And that's why the Bible says, reminds us to come back to that place of our first love. And, and if you're in that place where you're not there, uh, you're, you're not some kind of anomaly. This is something that we all experience at different times. And maybe even as I'm sharing this this morning, he's, he's, just, he's wooing you, wooing you to come back. Now, in verse 11, he illustrates his point with three famous men. Um, he's saying, woe to them. And he makes these illustrations. He speaks about the way of Cain, the Ur of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Now, Cain was a violent person with a religious veneer. That, that's who simply Cain was. He was the first murderer in the Bible. And the thing about Cain is God spoke to him personally taught him and instructed him. Yet in the end, he disbelieved God's word and rejected it. He was just a guy that had a religious veneer. Because here's, here's the thing about having a religious veneer. Nothing changes underneath it. The nature doesn't change. See, he saves us to save us from ourselves. <laughs> That's why I say salvation is always threefold. First of all, he saves us from hell. He saves us eternally. 
But secondly, he saves us from ourselves. I hope that doesn't offend you. I realize that I'm the most dangerous person I know. Because I can make choices and decisions for me that nobody else can make. And those decisions, mm, they can take me in the wrong direction. I love that song, I need thee every hour. Uh, I'm adding a new verse to that. I need thee every minute. That's a good revelation, isn't it? Uh, secondly, uh, uh, Balaam, and this guy here is basically, there's different aspects about Balaam, but he's the prophet of sensual indulgence. He used his gift, first of all, to try to enrich himself by prophesying doom upon Israel, but he failed, we know that. And so what he did after he failed, because, you know, he tried to, we know he went every direction trying to, you know, call down um, you know, some evil prophecy upon God's people. And every time he spoke, he spoke beautiful words. It's like the Holy Spirit just kind of, the Lord took over and he tried to, he, you know, he tried to say things evil about Israel. But interesting, some of Balaam's prophecies are beautiful. They're beautiful about Israel. God would not allow him. God, it's, it, it, he's an interesting study. God spoke to him that he shouldn't even go. And God spoke to him along through the whole process. And yet we find that he rejected that. And um, after he failed, here's what he did. He introduced sexual immorality among God's people, and that's what brought judgment upon them. You know, that's, that's what he wanted to do. All, that's, that's what Balak, who called him, wanted him to do all along, was call down judgment and, and prophesy evil upon them. God won't let that happen. So in his clever wickedness, well, I know how to get him. Just introduce foreign women. It was a sexual immorality that really brought judgment upon God's people. And folks, I think if there's been any day and time that we need to guard against ourselves against and our children and our homes against this filth that's out there it is it is it is it, again it has turned our culture into a cesspool and Balaam was a prophet of basically uh, sensual sexual indulgence and then Korah uh, who basically led a, a rebellion against God's ordained authority and basically what he does is he rebels and uh, he's the kind of person who likes to get a lot of people on board uh, he's not content. He's the guy that sows discord. He does something that God hates. And, of course, we know this story. The earth opened up and, you know, kind of swallowed him up, him and all. He was, he was a leader. He was a God-appointed leader, but he simply could not accept, you know, the place. He was discontent. Uh, so he gets his little majority, sows a lot of discord, creating a lot of problems. And, uh, and he's basically the leader who is discontent about, you know, you know, his particular place, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's simply an ego problem. And then here in verse 12, he further, uh, Jude further uh, profiles this particular group. Uh, it says there are spots in, in the love feast, um, 
uh, with, they have no fear, no fear of God, obviously, uh, serving only themselves, and uh, they never missed a potluck dinner. They had no fear of the Lord. Uh, their trademark was simply they're always serving themselves in some kind of way. There were clouds without water, trees yet without fruit, uh, noisy like the surf, and they were the kind of people who can never settle down, always unable to simply settle down, uh, kind of like what Isaiah said, sort of restless, um, like the waves of the ocean. Um, you know, how the wicked, you know, they, the, the wicked can never come to that place of rest. And isn't it beautiful to have Christ and to know the peace of God and to have that peace, you know, in our lives? And, and as we speak of these particular people, remember Jesus said, not all that say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But at what? It's those who do the will of God. It's those who do the will of God. I've often said this and I've often thought of, we might be a little surprised who is in heaven, who isn't in heaven. It might surprise us. It might shock us. And then here, he takes a, uh, he takes a uh, page there from Genesis, uh, looking at, and I will call him the prophet Enoch, because he prophesied. He was a prophet. Um, and he says, basically, behold, the Lord comes. His greater point here in this, simply this, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. He wrote this message 2,000 years ago. And here's what he's coming for, first and foremost, to rescue the church, to revive the nation of Israel and to bring spiritual awakening to God's people. To remove the, re to basically remove and put down the rebellion of men. He's going to finally do that. You know, right now, man is just sort of thumbing his nose at God. And some people think, you know, even like when you look at the Psalms, David, when David looked around his culture, he looked at his enemies, he looked at evil, he said, Oh Lord, how long? I can't tell you how many times I've, I've read the Psalms and I've just sort of, I've breathed out that same sentiment. Oh, Lord, how long? Folks, the Lord is coming. We were singing it. It's a doctrine that thoroughly infiltrates the entire New Testament. I remember one time I, we counted up how many times, I forget how many times, but we must not forget that. It's a purifying hope, isn't it? It's a blessed hope, and it's a hope that will keep us pure. And fourthly, he comes to restore the earth and establish his kingdom. And things are going to be different, folks. Things will be wonderfully different when the Lord sets up his kingdom. You think about all the insurrection, all the rebellion, all the things that tell the crime that takes place. Will be no more. The world will be a safe place. The king will be on his throne. And this also, too, is why the cross is absolutely critical and important. Because you see, Jesus takes our judgment. He took our condemnation. It's a wonderful thing realizing 
that we don't have to face the great white throne judgment. He took our punishment. He took our sin. And it's an exchange. It's a wonderful exchange of, of what he imparts to us, what he gives to us. You know, Paul, Paul says, it's, he, he refers to it as the riches of Christ. I, I kind of wonder for us as the church, have we really plumbed the depths of understanding what's available to us? I wonder when I get to heaven, I'm going to realize, well, I could have prayed for this and that. I didn't. I just didn't believe God would do that. You know, sometimes you read these stories about, you know, saints of, of the past and, you know, different, you know, testimonials of what God did in answer to prayer. And they're so stimulating and encouraging. But oftentimes when it comes to us, we think, oh, I don't think he's going to, I don't think he can do that. I, I think there, sometimes there's been theology, in our, in our present day theology, looking back at the early church and saying, well, you know, God did those things and he doesn't do them now. And I just wonder if it's a sort of a, a, an academic form of unbelief. It sounds very, you know, scholarly. Well, we study the scriptures and we just don't think that, you know, God, uh, those were, were, you know, for that dispensation. God doesn't do that anymore. Oh, okay. I guess that's why it's not happening. I, I just wonder about those kind of things. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to find out that there were certain areas of unbelief in my life where I didn't take advantage of what God had provided. That's why I think we get so many of these examples in the Bible. And um, to remind us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still a miracle-working God. You ever prayed for a miracle? <clears throat> you ever had one? There's a lot of little things I pray for. I consider them little miracles. Just little, little miracles. God's intervention. God turning a situation around that could have been could have been tragic. See, he wants us to believe that he can do that. He wants us to believe that. Ah, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and I think in the foremost way he's reminding us here to stay close to apostolic teaching. Hey, I enjoy the Old Testament, but apostolic teaching is simply this. You know what Judah's telling us here? Very simply, stay in the New Testament. Remember the early church, Acts 2.42? 
they continued in what? The apostles' doctrine. The apostles' teaching. Wherever you're reading the Bible, make sure that you have your finger on the page of some New Testament book. It'll encourage you. It'll strengthen you. He says in verse 18, there will be mockers in the last time. And, and the thing about this here is that they're claiming to be Christians, but they scoff at these time-tested principles and practices of the church. That's why be careful of new things, new doctrines, new teachings coming along that maybe you've never heard about before. Every once in a while we get the crazy things that sweep people away. I remember the doctrine about Roaring like lions. And it kind of swept through the churches. Just crazy things. I remember back in the 80s, the shepherding. Remember the shepherding doctrine? So many people got hurt in that thing. Oh, my goodness. It's so devastating. Jesus said, we'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. The truth will keep us free. Then he says about these in verse 19, summing that up, they're, they're sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. In other words, they, be, they become divisive simply because they operate by the natural senses because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not true believers. And that might shock us. But I think the end result of someone's life is going to prove that, isn't it? Now, I remember when I got saved, there, there were a, a number of people there in the mix and remember, Jesus did say the church would become like that. It would become like this giant tree that would grow up, the mustard seed that would grow up and become a tree that was abnormal. The point Jesus was making, that's abnormal because mustard, mustard seeds don't grow in the trees. But he said the church would be like, the kingdom of heaven would be like this, the church would be like that. Um, and then the fowls of the air would come and roost in it. And uh, when... when you study expositional constancy, the fowls of the air always have a negative connotation, have an evil, evil connotation. And I look back at my own experience, and there were just a number of people that I was convinced as a new believer that they, because there was just the, the banter, and the influence and, and the, the presence of the Lord. 
And yet, it's been 40-some years for me, and I've, and I've seen the end result of some of these lives leaving the church and going into goofy cults and things of that particular nature. I, I believe the, the, the Holy Spirit gives the true believer discernment to protect us and to keep us. These people did not have the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 20, here is how we contend and do battle. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. See, faith will come as we expose ourselves to the word of God, to the truth of God. Romans 10, 17 speaks to that effect. And the thing is, too, we need to feed daily. We need a daily portion of the manna. Remember in the context of that story, the man of the Old Testament would come down every day. And it was like a little wafer and it tasted like coriander seed and it was. But you only got it for that day. If you tried to eat yesterday's portion, it was full of worms. And I think there's a little truth there. You need that daily portion each and every day. Can't, you cannot read the, not read the Bible all week long and say, well, you know, on the seventh day, I'm going to catch up. Sorry. Just doesn't work that way. Just like the saints of old, you need that portion of manna each and every day. That's how you're going to build your faith up. Somebody once said, one week, seven days without the Bible makes one week. And you get the import of that. If you're getting just a little bit of Bible today and not all week, you're still going to be weak. You're going to be struggling. How many of us actually miss a meal during the week? As I look around, I don't think too many of you guys are, are missing a meal. I'm not either, okay? I'm not either. I'm with you. And if you're like me, you're on the perpetual diet, right? But you notice if you don't, like if you miss breakfast and lunch, you feel it. You feel the effect of it. You feel drained. You feel tired. You might feel exhausted. But I think spiritually it's the same way. We don't spend time in the Word building up our faith. And all of a sudden, <laughs> we come into a situation, a circumstance, and we're short of spirit. We're bugged. We're bothered. We're frazzled. We're frustrated. You need the input of the Word of God. You need truth in your spirit. Secondly, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it, it's simply this. It's praying with a reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
Remember Romans 8.26, we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us. And, and he even goes on to tell us in that, that the context of Romans 8, that he intercedes with, with groanings, which we cannot even understand. Do you ever sometimes come under the pressure of circumstances and all of a sudden you find yourself groaning? I think the Lord just simply, it's, I think it's a little reminder, hey, pray. Time to pray. We have a bunch of folks. A lot of them pray on Tuesday night. And every night we're at the castle. And I want to tell you, I am so blessed about that because they don't get any encouragement from me to do it. Which I'm glad, which I, which I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad it's happening without me pushing them to do it. And every night, and they, this has been going on for a couple years, every night at the castle they draw aside after the, after the teaching and after the fellowship, you know, sometime around 9.30 at night, and they go into prayer. I'm thinking, wow, that is so awesome, Lord. Prayer is so important. It is so important to our spiritual life, to the life of the church. God, help us. Help us to be praying people. Verse 21, I think this, the third thing here of how to contend, how to do battle. He concludes here with a call to love. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Remember Paul? It said of Paul that he was compelled by the love of Christ. You need the love of God in your life. Because if you don't, you're going to find yourself getting angry at all the things that are taking place. Before you know it, you'll just be angry at those homosexuals. Because of all the pressure they're putting politically that's the, that, that's the wrong tack. You know what we need to do with homosexuals? We need to love them. Because you know what? That's what they're looking for. And that's what they didn't get. You know, part of that whole, uh, oftentimes, and again, homosexuality, like many other things, uh, issues like it's not a simple matter. It's a complicated, um, you know, there's many different issues uh, involved in it. But, but like one of them is in homosexuality is that so many people have grown up in a dysfunctional home where they've not got the, the love of a father or maybe the love of a mother. And Satan has twisted the whole thing. Did you ever notice that someone is starving for love? They'll take it in any way they can get it. Any way they can get it. Even if it seems twisted and perverted. 
Because the way God has created you and me is we need love. We need the love of Christ. That's why the Bible speaks so much about love and God says, I am love. God is love. We need to keep reading 1 Corinthians 13 over and over again, how vital, how important it is. Here, listen to a couple verses here. Love suffers long, is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things without being naive. It hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But love doesn't come to us naturally. It comes to us supernaturally. Romans 5.5, 5, it's shed abroad. It's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's why we've got to walk in the Spirit. It's, it's a beautiful, spontaneous thing that God will do and pour through your life because why? You're trusting Him. You're walking in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Oh, be careful that you don't become critical and opinionated. Too easy to do that. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain, receive mercy. Now he says, on some have compassion, making a distinction. On others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that is spotted or defiled by the flesh. And of course, there are some people that I guess they need to be hung over the flames. And um, strong warnings, I guess, to, um, to bring them around. But Jude here closes with an expression of praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, folks, he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He'll keep us from falling. Do you know his keeping hand is upon your life? I wonder what he has kept you and I from this week. Probably kept us from something we don't even realize. He's able to keep you. Here's the other side of that. Obey him. He'll keep you, but you've got to obey him. You've got to trust him. And present you faultless, that is without spot, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And to God our Savior, who alone is wise. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, says, Jesus has become for us wisdom. He's your wisdom. Without him, we're doofuses. And we prove it from time to time, don't we? I know I do. He's become for us wisdom. Be glory and majesty and dominion and power now and forever, amen. And Lord, we bless you. 
Thank you that you're able to keep us from falling. And to present us before you. And Lord, you do that with exceeding joy. Lord, help us, I pray, to contend. Without becoming contentious, without becoming angry and frustrated, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you pour your love into our hearts? Lord, Paul was just constrained, restrained in so many situations by your love. Lord, we need that too. God, I pray that you'd bless your people as we go. That these things that we study, we consider, Lord, that they would be implemented in our lives to bring you praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name. Amen.